Welcome to Practically Healthy. I'm Dr. Melina Jampolis, and I each week talk to the latest experts on topics about things that will practically improve your life and get you to be practically not perfectly healthy. My guest this week is a very interesting topic um, that I know almost nothing about, so this should be quite interesting. Welcome to the show, Ronan Levy. He is the co-founder and executive chairman of Field Trip Health and also has his own podcast called Field Trip. And jump right in and let us know what this is all about, because this is a whole new world to me. So I'm either going to have really good questions or really silly questions that make no sense. But tell us a little bit about Field Trip Health and the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for those who aren't aware, we're in the midst of what many people are calling a psychedelic renaissance uh, as psychedelic drugs. Uh, for medical and therapeutic purposes are, are making a roaring comeback based on some incredible research starting from the 50s and 60s, certainly. But over the last 10 or 15 years, uh, the research and the evidence and the safety and efficacy around drugs like ketamine, psilocybin or magic mushrooms, MDMA, more commonly known as ecstasy, uh, and others have really popped into the spotlight with tremendous results. You know, we're seeing uh, treatments with psychedelic assisted therapies showing orders of magnitude greater efficacy than current uh, approaches to depression and anxiety treatments and other mental health conditions. And the safety profile of psychedelics is, is, is remarkable. You know, this is, is something that people have a hard time digesting because for the last 50 years, we've been taught just how dangerous psychedelics are. And, and certainly with any drug, there's a risk. But when you look at the safety profile of psychedelics, they're among some, some of the safest drugs out there bar none, including many pharmaceuticals. And, and so what we're doing with Field Trip is we're actually building out clinical centers for the delivery of psychedelic-assisted therapies, starting primarily with ketamine-assisted therapy. Because ketamine is an FDA-approved drug as an anesthetic, and a form of ketamine has actually been approved for treatment-resistant depression. Um, and, and positioning ourselves such that in the next couple of years, we expect to see that MDMA-assisted therapy will be approved for the treatment of PTSD, psilocybin-assisted therapy for the treatment of major depression, treatment-resistant depression, and, and beyond. Uh, and we think this is going to fundamentally revolutionize, revolutionize mental health and, and psychiatry. And, and so that's what Field Trip is. And, and the, the podcast Field Tripping is actually the name. It's Field Tripping. We, we try to differentiate a little bit. Uh, it's all about normalizing the conversation, um, which is for many people, the conversation around psychedelics is still shocking. But when you hear about the, the number of truly incredible, successful, thoughtful, competent, capable people who have used psychedelics, both in a clinical setting, as well as maybe a recreational setting, productively, uh, I think it really changes the conversation quite quickly. And that's what we do on the podcast. So let's just back up a little bit. I mean, because again, I'm this is something that um, I know nothing about and, and have not personally experimented with um, at all, um, although I'm not close to it. Um, but, but psychedelics, ex explain what that term is means exactly in more scientific terms instead of, you know, when I think of it, I think of, you know, the hippies, you know, just tripping out, you know, at parties and kind of. So explain to us a, a little bit about specifically what psychedelics are, what they what they mean, what they do, and, and 
Also then, you know, how they address these really, you know, significant clinical conditions. Sure. Um, so psychedelic refers to a broad class of drugs. And then there is some debate as to technically what a psychedelic is. By and large, most people accept the definition of, of a psychedelic as something that creates uh, usually a visual and auditory hallucination um, as part of the experience, but isn't exclusively so. The classic psychedelics that most people think about, like psilocybin or magic mushrooms and LSD, they're a class of molecule known as a tryptamine, um, which is a, a very simple molecule all built around uh, the kind of core, this is not very scientific language, so I apologize, but the core psychedelic molecule, which is a, a molecule called DMT or dimethyltryptamine, which is something we, our body naturally synthesizes. And in fact, um, current belief among some is if you've ever heard of people who have had near-death experiences and they have the white light and they see their family members, it is thought that that's actually the body dumping DMT into the body as part of the dying experience. And it creates actually a trip or a hallucination uh, that people report. And so drugs like psilocybin and LSD, they're just kind of modified versions of DMT. These are very much the drugs that the hippies used in the 1960s. And depending on who you talk to, some people think that's fantastic. Some people are still a little bit skeptical of what the hippies stood for. But I personally liked a lot of the policy initiatives that were driven forward by that counterculture. But that's a totally different conversation. What's different from what happened in the 60s and 70s and what's happening now is that these are not drugs that are being used in a, at a concert or a party setting or anything along their those lines. They're being used in a context of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And what that means is people will uh, be administered a psychedelic, ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA. It induces a psychedelic experience. Um, during the entire experience, there's a therapist, sometimes two psychotherapists present for the duration of the experience that are supporting you uh, throughout it. And afterwards, what people find is they have a lot of insights. They, it helps them have a lot of awareness, change their perspective on past experiences or past traumas or life in general, and gives them an openness, and, and we can get a little bit more into the science of this, uh, to actually change their life, to change their perspective, to change their habits, their, their mindset, anything along those lines. And the results of psychedelic-assisted therapies are are absolutely mind-blowing uh, and then that's not meant to be a pun it really is quite remarkable so right now there is a phase three fda clinical trial happening with mdma assisted therapy for the treatment of ptsd and in the phase two and in the first leg of the phase three trial uh, involving two mdma assisted therapy sessions for the treatment of chronic severe ptsd they found that close to 70 percent of participants no longer qualified as having ha as having PTSD after just two sessions. So we're talking about a near effective cure for PTSD after two afternoons, basically tripping out on MDMA with a therapist present. Now it's a little bit more complex than that because it's a lot of preparatory work and there's a lot of integration work after the psychedelic experience. But we're talking about a near cure for PTSD, whereas the current best treatment plans hope to achieve a 30% improvement in symptoms versus a 70% near effective cure rate with no severe adverse events 
We're talking about a near miracle drug with MDMA-assisted therapy, and we're seeing similar results with psilocybin-assisted therapy for the treatment of major depression and treatment-resistant depression. One study out of New York University found that a single psilocybin-assisted therapy session could provide antidepressant effects and relief for five years or more one session, five years or more. These are truly remarkable results. And that's what we're talking about here. Um, this is is really, I think, I, I, I can't conceive of a situation where this doesn't, doesn't fundamentally displace most current approaches to mental health care and psychiatry. That, I mean, that sounds very, it, it sounds very interesting and promising. What, so let's, let's just talk a little bit about the science. I mean, for, for PTSD, is it unlocking areas of the brain that for perhaps are, are repressing that uh, toxic experience or memory? Or I, I think it seems like the mechanism of action would be different for, for example, severe depression versus PTSD. And I, I noticed a lot of your guests on your podcast are former military. So I can imagine that that's you know, really clinically relevant, um, you know, therapeutic regimen. So, but what, what's what's the difference and what's the theory? Uh, the, the theory, I'll touch on that um, first, is there seems to be a number of things that occur uh, during a psychedelic assisted therapy experience. And when, when it comes to most matters pertaining to the mind and the brain, the, the truth is, convoluted and we're not entirely sure how it works, but there's a number of strong theories that have been validated, at least by fMRI studies, uh, looking at people during the experience. And what seems to happen um, is the effects seem to be the result of a combination of three factors. One is with most psychedelics, uh, they tend to create a very rapid onset of a serotonin release uh, and serotonin naturally boosts mood. Uh, so within 45 minutes to an hour of administration of a psychedelic, people feel better, um, just naturally. Uh, secondly, during a psychedelic experience, and, and this seems to be consistent across most psychedelics, people are often able to revisit past events, past traumas, and look at life experiences or global events from a different, more objective lens. So whatever triggers, whatever traumas, whatever baggage they've been carrying with them up to that point, they're able to look at these circumstances just differently uh, and see them with a, from a new light. And, and this is largely what I think by and large people try to achieve through and achieve in cognitive behavioral therapy or conventional approaches to therapy. It just happens instead of over the course of months or years in one or two sessions that people are able to have these breakthroughs and see things differently. Thirdly, uh, what seems to happen is that most psychedelics actually induce a state of neuroplasticity in the brain. And, and we get to see this expressed in two ways. One is uh, that there is actually synaptogenesis. Uh, we've seen this with ketamine and psilocybin, that your brain actually starts to regrow neural synapses. So basically the, the cells that connect brain cells to each other. So you're actually creating brain matter to some degree uh, and creating new connections, which tend to get destroyed through depression and, and PTSD. I don't understand the molecular nature of that. I won't profess to, but I do know that seems to happen with people who experience depression and we see that it starts to get undone following psychedelic experiences. 
And during the state of neuroplasticity, people, you know, just like children are much more able to adopt new languages or new skills than old folks like us. During the state of neuroplasticity, people are able to adopt new habits or new outlooks and new mindsets and, and really entrench them. The way author Michael Pollan talked about it is imagine taking a snow globe and shaking it up. It's like when the snow was all at the bottom beforehand, that was your daily life. With psychedelics, it's all up in the air and you actually have the opportunity to reframe it or another example that was given was uh, I know you're in LA but if you can imagine cross-country ski tracks uh, you know after people use them and this is what has been seen in the brain is that the more th consistent thoughts you have the easier it is to have those thoughts so if you have depressive thoughts over and over and over again it becomes easier to have those depressive thoughts and, and one of the theories is that uh, the psychedelic experience kind of acts like a, a new mountain of snow over those cross-country tracks that you actually can start creating new tracks um, in, in your brain that helps you get out of those consistent thought patterns. And I've heard some estimates suggest that 97 to 98% of our daily thoughts are identical to the thoughts we had before. So you can see how that can be a significant uh, change if, if you can break out of those patterns. What's happening in the brain at this time, uh, what we do see in the fMRI scans is parts of your brain what are, as, that are known as the default mode network, which is where in psychological terms, the ego or the sense of self tends to reside, seems to quiet down. So that part of your brain actually becomes less active while other parts of your brain that don't normally interact start speaking to each other. And that seems to explain the synesthesia uh, that people have during a psychedelic experience when you know music takes on new form or words take on new meaning or anything along those lines. It's because your brain is actually talking to itself more and, and making different connections. And with your default mode network or your sense of self or ego quieted, you're much more able to change because the ego, at least in psychological terms, exists to maintain your sense of identity. And when it's you know taking a nap, then you have that opportunity to change your self-identity, your, your self-expression. Uh, and that seems to be what's happening on the brain level is different parts of your brain are active, other parts are quiet, and, and that enables people to make stronger changes in who they are. So does the microdosing, it's, it's small doses of ketamine, correct? Be it's no, no. What we're talking about is actually large doses, large transformational doses. Micro, the, the evidence around this is all in large doses. There's very little evidence around microdosing right now. But it's not enough to put you out because I've got, I've undergone anesthesia many times for knee surgery and back surgery. I am a skier, so that uh, analogy yeah. does. And and I. I don't remember it being transformative or or changing my. Uh, you know, inducing any neuroplasticity that I'm aware of in any way. So it, this, I, it, you know, what's difference? And also what's the difference? You say it's being used recreationally and then also, you know, how you're using it, I assume at your, at your field trip um, health centers, you know, it, it, you know, explain to me how this is, this is, it's different from what the hippies were doing or did they have it right well, I mean, I suppose whether they had it right or not is a, <laughs> is a question of uh, politics and perception. But uh, so I'll just clarify the difference between microdosing and what we're doing. So microdosing typically refers to subperceptual doses. So if you hear someone microdosing mushrooms, they're taking small amounts that they don't 
or only, only notice very small alterations in your perception. So draw an analogy, you know, microdose would be like having half a drink. You know, you kind of feel it, but you're not drunk, you're not intoxicated, you just know your awareness is slightly altered. That's my thing. Um, the doses of ketamine we use at field trip, it's not a microdose. Uh, it is a sub-anesthetic dose. So you're not unconscious. You're still very much able to maintain your faculties. Um, but when you close your eyes, you're very much in a psychedelic experience. You are having a shifted sense of consciousness during that time. Um, and, and that's important because we want you to be able to remember the experience as much as possible because there's a lot of insight and awareness that comes from that with large doses when it's done as an anesthetic actually a lot of this research particularly around ketamine came out of the fact that anecdotally and not a lot many physicians reported that after using ketamine as an anesthetic so knocking their patients out those patients also correspondingly reported a significant improvement in their mental health. And, and that's what actually triggered a lot of the mental health exploration with ketamine, so much so that Dr. Tim, Tom Insel, who was the um, director of the National Institute of Mental Health uh, about five or six years ago, declared that ketamine is the most important breakthrough in depression treatments in the last 50 years. Uh, and that was one of those things that was just a coincidental stumble upon that people noticed that there was mood improvements following ketamine administration, regardless of the size of dose. So the obvious question is kind of about abuse because, you know, I, I think in the proper, and, and I mean, I guess the same could be said for anything, uh, you know, any of the, I saw with Michael Pollan that he talks about opium, caffeine, and mescaline in his, in his book, but you know, one of the things I'm, and again, this is just educating me uh, because this is something that's very new to me. I mean, it seems like there's potential for abuse. It seems like that, and and then I'm also curious about the side effects. I mean, the idea of just being so out of control to where you're having visual and auditory hallucinations seems dangerous to me. Am I being naive, or is it only to be done under you know? Uh, monitored conditions to really have the true benefits. Yeah. So, um, so Michael Pollan has written two books touching on on psychedelics. One is called How to Change Your Mind, where he actually subjects himself to a lot of these experiences, and it's a great read because it goes through a lot of the history and science uh, around this. Um, Risk of abuse, actually, when it comes to most psychedelics, is quite low. So, interestingly, LSD. Um, this may surprise folks, but Alcoholics Anonymous was actually inspired by an LSD trip, uh, and the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous actually intended to use LSD as a treatment for alcoholism, because what we've seen is that with at least psilocybin and LSD and the tryptamine molecules, they tend to be anti-addictive, which means not only are they not addictive, so the risk of abuse is low, uh, they can actually help people break other addictions. Uh, one study looking at smoking sensation I actually found psilocybin to be the most effective uh, smoking sensation aid with something like 75% of participants uh, significantly decreasing their smoking uh, following treatment. A study came out about a week ago looking at ketamine-assisted therapy for 
uh, alcohol use disorder uh, and people reported substantial reductions in their alcohol consumption. Uh, so again, with, uh, with psilocybin and LSD and the classic tryptamines, there's virtually no risk of, of abuse or overdose. The LD50 is incredibly high, so you can't overdose as you could on, say, heroin or um, any kind of opiate. Uh, with MDMA and ketamine, there is a potential risk of abuse. Overall, it is relatively small. And I'm just talking if people are just taking it on their own willy-nilly, they just get access to it. What we're talking about and where all the evidence is, is doing this in a controlled environment. So we're talking about coming into a clinical setting. There's usually a doctor overseeing it, one or two therapists present. And while certainly it sounds scary having a, a hallucination experience, uh, for many, um, it is actually part of the experience. And when controlled by therapists and doctors who know what they're doing, the risks are, are extremely low. In fact, various studies have found that um, uh, psilocybin, LSD, and ketamine are both in terms of harm to self as well as harm to others, lower risk than many drugs that people would consider safe. You know, many people consider cannabis safe. And in, in these studies, they actually find it less risky for psychedelics than cannabis, and certainly less risky than very many um, over the or many prescription drugs as well. Um, so the risk of abuse is, is low. You know, if people take it in the street, can they go out and do something stupid like jump off a building? Absolutely. People can do that without drugs. They can do that on alcohol. They can do that on all sorts of things. So it's not a risk that's unique to, to psychedelics. Um, but in, in the context that we're talking about, that risk goes to effectively zero because they're, they're in a controlled environment with people overseeing it in a proper way. So let's talk that it, it, it's all, you know, certainly refractory depression is, is something that I, I deal with a lot in my practice and, and, um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the treatments are just dulling the senses, especially serotonin-based therapies, um, you know, and then it, it, and there are, you know, side effects. So, and I, I do see PTSD, particularly with, even with eating disorders in my practice, I see that quite a bit. So that's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, um, you know, concept, you know, that I would I would approach with caution, but it seems like there's fairly robust research. Let's just, I'm curious with your, with your podcast, um, you, uh, you have some guests that I know, what, what are some of the more interesting, um, stories share with us a little bit. Um, you know, I, th I saw you had my colleague that I've worked with quite a bit, Dr. Mike Dow, um, come on and he was speaking about bipolar disorder, I guess, but, and, and a lot of the veterans is, Tell us some of the more interesting kind of success stories and, and also, you know, how this is done. I was curious also about your center, um, the health centers, because you talk about an integrative approach. So sorry, that's two questions, uh, but let's start with some of the more interesting stories and then let's switch gears to hear a little bit more about your center and the integrative approach. Yeah, absolutely. So we've had a, a number of amazing guests. Um, Dr. Andrew Weil is probably the one of the more interesting ones who came on to talk about his experiences. And, and you know, his perspectives were probably more extreme. You know, he attributes uh, using LSD constructively to helping him get over his allergy of cats, for example. Now, there is evidence to suggest that uh, psilocybin and LSD are actually anti inflammatory. So it's not actually as ridiculous as it sounds. Um, and certainly Dr. Weil's credentials speak for themselves. Um, 
the the interesting stories you know i'm i'm not going to reference the podcast as much as as some of the what we've seen in our, our clinical settings which is we've had patients you know we've had a, a survivor of sexual trauma for example who wasn't able to look in her look at herself in a mirror without revulsion uh being able to look herself uh, look in a mirror and see herself as beautiful you know that was a really powerful story we've had uh, military veterans who lost all connection to empathy um feeling empathy following our treatments i certainly have spoken to um uh, people like Marcus and, and other military veterans on the podcast who attribute uh, their work with either ayahuasca or psilocybin or other treatments as enabling them to, to have their lives back and, and repair their relationships with their spouses and partners and, 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 and their children. Uh, so the, the, the spectrum of improvements is significant from people who can't leave their houses to people who are just like honestly destroying their lives with alcohol and drugs, uh, getting off those paths. And, and what we're seeing in our clinics supports that on an objective basis too, which is on average, a patient who comes in and, and most patients suffering with major depression or refractory depression go through about four to six ketamine assisted therapy sessions over call it a three to four week period. Um, we see that their PHQ-9 and GAD-7 scores uh, go from severe to mild. Um, and those benefits are sustained on average for about 120 days or more. So the average person will go many months uh, with significant improvements. Many people continue with their SSRIs or conventional treatments if they're they're using them, but those benefits are sustained. And then people tend to come back, you know, on average, we see about 30 to 40% people come back for a single session after about six months or nine months kind of thing. And that seems to become their cadence, which is they can maintain the benefits without a full course of treatment with just a single session, um, you know, interspersed over a few months. So, and, and then with the PTSD, is it more of a, of a one and done type of thing, or is that something that needs to be sustained as well as, as in terms of therapeutic regimens? Uh, with PTSD, it, it's actually in, in our program. So we have our, our basic program for depression and anxiety, which is usually four to six sessions. And we do an integration session, which involves no drug, just pure talk therapy, taking the insights and awareness and trying to put them into action, interspersed after every two ketamine sessions. With PTSD, it's actually a more rigorous program. Uh, it's, it's definitely six sessions. And usually there's an integration session after every ketamine experience. Um, and then in terms of the, the sustenance and how long it lasts for, I'm, I, I don't know specifically for PTSD, the numbers I know off the top of my head, specifically look at the PHQ-9 and GAD-7 scores, so I, I can't comment on that. But at least anecdotally, from what I've heard, uh, many people report significant improvements and sustained improvements. And, and in terms of, you know, acceptance by the medical community, is this something that, you know, I mean, MDMA is a street drug. I mean, ecstasy, right? Is this something that is is legal in the United States? Is it? I mean, I know you're in Canada. Is this something that any doctor with the right schedule of prescribing from the DEA can do at this time? Or is this something that's more on the future horizon in terms of, you know, being an established medical modality? So any physician with a DEA license can prescribe and administer ketamine. I certainly wouldn't recommend any physician who can do it to do so, because one of the things that's really important with psychedelic-assisted therapies, at least in the in the studies, um, talk about how important the preparatory therapy is, how important the integration therapy is, and, and 
quite significantly how important the actual location of the experience is. You know, if, if you're in a hospital setting with fluorescent lights and white walls and a whole bunch of frenetic energy around you, you're more likely to have a, a challenging or negative experience with a psychedelic than you are if you're in a comfortable setting. And so if you visit our website, which is fieldtriphealth.com, you can see what our clinics look like. And they've been described as spa-like or oasis-like because we really want people to be at ease for their experience to make sure they have a positive experience. And just as a quick note, piece often comes up in questions about the notion of a bad trip. Um, current belief is that there's no such thing as a bad trip per se. Uh, there are challenging trips and there are easy trips. Challenging trips can become bad trips if not properly supported, you know, and they can create their own, own traumatic experience on their own. Properly supported, though, uh, what we found is that challenging experiences can be the most cathartic and lead to the biggest breakthrough. Um, and that's why it's important that, you know, any doctor who has a DEA license shouldn't just go out and start doing this. You really want to make sure you have the the right capabilities in terms of patient care and, and therapeutic knowledge to make sure that, you know, if people have a challenging experience, you're, you're supporting them properly. MDMA and psilocybin are still Schedule One drugs in the U.S. Um, MAPS, which is the nonprofit organization conducting the phase three clinical trials for MDMA-assisted therapy, expects their the second arm of their phase three to be complete uh, by October of this year with readout expected by early 2023. So we could see uh, FDA approval for MDMA assisted therapy as soon as next year. Um, on a regulatory basis, there are some states that just follow uh, the federal government. Uh, and so if the federal government reschedules then those states will reschedule, uh, and then it'll just be about having the right DEA license again. Uh, for states that have their own scheduled list, uh, then there's going to be some regulatory and political work that'll need to be done. Psilocybin is probably two years after that. So we anticipate uh, the current clinical work is in phase 2B uh, with psilocybin assisted therapy. Late last year, an organization, a company called Compass Pathways reported their phase 2B results, uh, and they found significant improvements through a single psilocybin-assisted therapy session as well. Um, so we could see that rescheduled by about 2025, 2026. This is in the purely medical context. On a state-by-state -state basis, we see political action um, changing laws. So in the state of Oregon last year, um, I guess two years ago now, uh, the voters in Oregon supported something called Measure 109. Uh, and so what Measure 109 does is it creates a legal regulated market for psilocybin services. And what makes this distinct from the FDA pathways is unlike in the FDA where you'd have to have a, a medical indication for a doctor to prescribe in the state of Oregon, um, anyone over the age of 21 would be allowed to access psilocybin assisted therapies provided you don't have a specific specified contraindication. So by and large, these, these therapies are incredibly safe, um, but for certain individuals and groups, they're not recommended. Certainly people who have um, schizophrenia or severe bipolar, uh, anyone with a kind of tenuous grip on reality, uh, objective reality, as we call it, uh, probably it's not a suitable treatment option. You know, people, at least with ketamine, with uh, elevated and uncontrolled high blood pressure, it's not appropriate. But by and large, the, these modalities are quite safe, like I said, when properly supported. So I have two questions, two more questions, and then I'm going to, sure. we'll, we'll refer our uh, listeners to more resources to learn more about this, because I think it could be of great interest and benefit to, to the appropriate patients. Uh, selfishly, is there any research showing that any of these 
um, psychedelics help with sleep? Because that's something that I personally struggle with considerably and have gone through every major medical modality in multiple combinations uh, without any benefit. Do you, are you aware of any research that um, shows any of these to be effective in sleep? I, I'm not, but that's not necessarily not because the research isn't out there. There may be research. I'm just not familiar with it. Certainly something I'll, I'll look into, but I, I just not, I don't know at this moment. Okay. Well, maybe you can look in and let us know afterwards and I can share that with our listeners. The other question I have is, you know, when I think of this, um, you know, I think of either people who look like Dr. Andrew Weil, you know, who is still more in the hippie, um, you know, schema. Um, but also, I mean, how are people, you know, like I noticed you had Ben Greenfield on your podcast. Like, so how are these biohackers, I'll call them without disrespect, using this recreationally? How do they purport that it benefits um, them? Because clearly, I mean, I assume most of them don't have trauma or PTSD or refractory depression. So what are some of the things that an average consumer or somebody who wants to be super average uh, gains from this sort of um, treatment? Yeah, well, I, I certainly agree that not everyone has PTSD, but I, I would argue that everybody has some trauma in their lives, whether it's from a breakup or, you know, a childhood experience or the death of a family member, we all have trauma. And, and the way I think about psychedelic assisted therapies, uh, particularly for those looking at it from an optimization perspective or a biohacking perspective is... I'm a big believer personally that everyone would benefit from just therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, going to a therapist once a week or once a month and talking through your stuff. I'm a big believer that will help. And the way I liken psychedelic assisted therapies to that is um, kind of like going to the gym, which is you can go to the gym on a daily or weekly basis and work out and you're going to make improvements most likely. But if you go to the gym with a trainer, you're going to make faster improvements, better improvements, and, and get more done in the same time. And, and that's the way I look at psychedelic-assisted therapy is that we all got trauma. We all got things we got to work through. We all have struggles. We all have anxieties, maybe not at the clinical level, but they all exist. And, and these approaches are just very expeditious generally safe ways to make significant improvements on those issues. And then going a step further, uh, you know, the, the research hasn't focused on this lately, but many of the studies in the 60s and 70s uh, suggested that psychedelic assisted therapies can enhance creativity, can enhance empathy, um, can enhance one's connection to the planet and, and, and nature. And really what I would consider to be very positive characteristics that are, you know, never in too much supply. And, and so when we talk about the biohacker or the optimization community, it's people who are looking to make their lives better, not because necessarily they're struggling in a negative sense, but it doesn't mean we can't get more out of life. We can't be happier, can't be more fulfilled or connected. And, and I think psychedelic therapies, uh, just like conventional therapies are a great way to get there just kind of faster. Yeah, no, I think that's very good insight. And I definitely think probably everybody, if they had time, could benefit from cognitive behavioral therapy. Certainly, that is one thing that has been suggested for me for sleep, which I haven't. So I noticed you have a clinic in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm a part of me is terrified because I'm, I'm just somebody who doesn't like being out of control. So I've, I've never, you know, even just 
smoking weed is not something that I really enjoy because I feel like a loss of control. I'd rather be on more of a stimulant that helps me be hyper-focused. But now you've piqued my curiosity. I I don't know whether I'll do it. I'm not promising listeners that I will. But again, because the sleep issue has been such the bane of my existence for over a decade, and I, I believe that there's more than likely some component of anxiety. And if I could address that and move on, it would be a game changer for me. So um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by this uh, podcast. I, I appreciate you coming on and, and, and explaining things to us. And I think, you know, the, the podcast is called Practically Healthy. You know, none of, none of us are perfectly healthy and we're looking for practical solutions. You know, maybe this isn't ready for prime time yet, but I think there is a lot of promising research. And, and if there are people out there that are struggling with some of these conditions, I mean, you know, I, I think um, it may be something worth looking into. So where can they go to learn more about this and about you? And and you mentioned the organization and the field. Sure. Um, so people are more interested in learning more about Field Trip. Our website is fieldtriphealth.com. Uh, on socials, we're at Field Trip Health. Me personally, um, my socials are Ronan, uh, R-O-N-A-N, D as in David Levy. So Ronan D. Levy um, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, those are great places to look if you're interested in, in, in kind of robust coverage of the research. Um Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, is is a great one to look at. Maps.org is the website for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Definitely a great resource. Uh, Dr. Mike Dow and I are actually writing a book right now uh, on ketamine-assisted therapies and and best practices. So I certainly encourage you to to speak with Mike uh, about your anxieties. And then I'll leave you with one final thought, which is uh, I'm a big believer that the, the greatest mistake we make in life is thinking that we're in control and the greatest fallacy is thinking that we'd want control even if we could have it. Um, so, you know, may, maybe it'd be a great experience for you. And I wouldn't be surprised not being a therapist, but having done a lot of my work, uh, a lot of work myself is um, maybe that, that adherence to control is, is, is one of those factors in affecting your sleep. Just speculating on that, but I wouldn't be surprised if we found that there was a connection there. Yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised either. There, there's got to be something going on because besides just hormones because I'm getting old. But um, anyways, <laughs> um, well, Ronan, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom and your thoughtful uh, presentation of this new field to me. And um, for those of you listening, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You've been listening to Practically Healthy. I'd love to hear your comments. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Have any of you ever tried it? Reach out to me on Instagram, on Facebook, any way you can get a hold of me. I'm very interested in this topic and I want to know if you are too and what you would like to learn more about. So um, subscribe, like, and follow us, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks again, Ronan. Thank you.